0: All romance, it's still the same old story. You meet a guy, he wines and dines you, he sleeps with you, he dumps you, he tries to kill you. (laughs) It's time for episode 48 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture. And I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your love ya host, Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome as my guest, Hollywood hyphenate writer-actor Kelly Campbell, who has chosen the Nancy Myers directed Diane Keaton vehicle, Something's Gotta Give, and I have chosen the classic Joan Crawford film noir, Sudden Fear, both movies with plots revolving around female playwrights and their love lives. To begin, Kelly, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself?
1: All right. Like you said, I'm a writer-actor. I moved to LA ugh, too long ago now with the intent of being an actor, but I found myself frustrated with lack of auditions. Or when I did go on audition, it was a commercial audition where you were asked to do something ridiculous. But I got into improv and sketch at Groundlings in UCB, and I found a freedom there and, and a new art. And then that got me more into writing. And then I realized, oh, I have the power to write my own stuff. And then it became writing for other people. So I've evolved to the this period in LA and now I'm pumping out screenplays hoping somebody will buy it
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh yes well, with that, let's get to your selection, and that is Something's Gotta Give. Okay. First, some information about the film. Something's Gotta Give is an American film released in 2003. It was directed, written, and produced by Nancy Meyers. It stars Jack Nicholson, Diane Keaton, Keanu Reeves, Amanda Peet, Frances McDormand, John Favreau, Paul Michael Glazer, Rachel Ticotton, KD Strickland, and Peter Spears. The story revolves around Erica, the best female playwright since Lillian Hellman, and more of that, like later Mm -hmm. spending her time at her house in the hamptons trying to work through her writer's block and complete her new play her daughter brings to the hamptons a much older man harry a wealthy entrepreneur and playboy who has a heart attack erica is left to help him get better they have sex and erica falls in love but she is also pursued by harry's much younger doctor so what will happen when harry is well enough to return to new york city why did you choose this film
1: I've asked myself in previous years, why do I like this movie so much? It's one of those movies that if it's on TV and I'm just flipping through, I have to watch it. And I only have a handful of movies that are that way and they're usually action adventure movies. Jurassic Park or Pirates of the Caribbean, Indiana Jones. This is this odd rom-com written for an older base that I'm obsessed with. And a part of me thinks that it's because Diane Keaton is living the life in it that I dream of. She's this successful successful awesome single lady living her life. I love French stuff. There's all these French themes throughout the movie, the French music. I love the arcs that both of the characters go through. It's interesting hearing you describe it. I always thought of it as Diane Keaton's more of her character story, but I looked at the IMDb quick little logline of it and in re-watching it, and I realized that I had missed the beginning a lot when it's on TBS or something and I catch it halfway through. It opens with hair With Jack Nicholson's voiceover. So it opens like it's his story. But to me, it's Diane Keaton's story and maybe also because we see more of her catharsis and her writing her masterpiece while she's going through her anguish of the broken heart. It's almost like a fairy tale for an older woman. The two men fall in love with her. She gets her hit play. She ends up in a snowy Paris being confessed to somebody loving her. There's something just so rom-com magical about it. What do you think?
0: think? Well, I think you bring up a very interesting point that we will be getting into it. The idea that You think of it as Diane Keaton's story, yet, for example, the story opens with Harry. Yeah. Well, talk about their character arcs, because I think that is important. When did you first see it?
1: I don't think I saw it in the theater when it came out. I usually can remember if I saw it in the theater. I think I probably just saw it on TV, on probably like TBS in the early 2000s. I had always only seen it on TV since. To give it a good rewatch for us to talk about it. Got it from the library because I'm old school. But I've seen it at least 20 times, but I don't think I saw it in the theater.
0: I saw it when it opened, so I did actually see it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I find it a lot of fun. I think it's very enjoyable. But full disclosure, mm-hmm. I think that it succeeds mainly due to Diane Keaton. Mm-hmm. I think she's just wonderful in this, I think she's a lot of fun. I've always liked Diane Keaton. It's hard not to like her. But I think there are issues with the movie, which we'll get into, that Diane Keaton, because she is so good, manages to hide in some way. Ah. Uh, But overall, I do find it a very enjoyable and very entertaining movie. I think it actually asks some interesting questions as well. I'm not sure how well it answers them, but I think it has some very interesting questions. So what are some of your favorite scenes from the movie?
1: An important moment that touches me is the, uh, you don't want pancakes anymore? They had a connection, but Amanda Peet comes home, breaks up the connection while they're making French toast or whatever in the middle of the kitchen. And you see the moment where Diane Keaton realizes, oh, I actually kind of like this guy. And where Jack Nicholson's, oh, I actually kind of would rather spend time with this older lady instead of this younger, sexier one. Everything packed into you don't want pancakes anymore? feel that to my soul. And then I love, maybe the first time I saw it was before I had ever had a serious relationship, but even then I related to it, but now I relate to it even more. Her montage of crying, waking up and crying, waking up with a smile, crying.
0: I like the part where she's writing and she starts laughing and then she starts crying.
1: Yes, yes! It was written by a writer and it's about a writer writing something. So I don't know if any of this is based on anything of Nancy Meyers' real life, but there's also fun winks about that in my brain. I also love their sex scene the difference having sex with Diane Keaton versus a younger woman where she's worried about his blood pressure, cuts off her turtleneck, and him seeing the play, coming into that rehearsal seeing the dancing naked hospital gowns, Harry's, and then the whole ending in Paris there are little moments here and there that I absolutely love but those are the ones that stand out.
0: I certainly agree with you, there's a lot of very clever subtext in this movie where they're not talking about what they're talking about and you realize that they're talking about changes in their relationships mm-hmm. and you mentioned one of them you don't want pancakes anymore well they're not really talking about yeah. pancakes at that uh, point. and you also, also mentioned perhaps my favorite part of the movie and that begins when harry is at dinner and this woman starts talking about this play <laughs> and he realizes it's about him Yes. Rushes over to the theater and goes in. Erica is telling him, no, it's not about you. It's about a lot of people. And this is where we get some rather brilliant farce. One definition of farce is that the last person you ever want to come into a room is the one that always comes into a room. So as soon as Erica says, no, it's not about you. And the guy comes up and says, oh, are we supposed to say love you or love you? (laughs) Yeah, right. right. He comes up twice and Just the wrong time. And then, yes, he does go to the play at the very end where he sees all the men with the fake butts on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the scenes in France are quite lovely, but it can be difficult to make scenes in France not be lovely.
1: That's true.
0: To get to one of my issues, and that is the part of Erica, as I said, I think the movie really, in many ways, depends on Diane Keaton, because I think in many ways her character is underdrawn. The first thing that I noticed, I noticed this when I first saw it in the theater, they call her the greatest female playwright since Lillian Hellman first i'm going why are you calling her female playwright instead of a playwright oh, uh-huh. and i thought that was a very odd thing especially for a female writer to do because that automatically you're lowering her right as a writer she's not a playwright she's a female playwright the addition to this and pauline Kales said something like this at the same time to call someone the greatest female playwright since lillian hellman is not much of a compliment <laughs> Lily Hellman is a very good writer. She wrote some very good plays, but she's no Eugene O'Neill. She's no George right. or Tennessee Williams or Inesco. So, But beyond that, we don't really get to know that much about her. We don't know what she writes about. We don't know what her themes are, what her ideas are. She doesn't get social invitations. She doesn't get lecture invitations. I mean, she's supposed to be this big female playwright, and nobody seems that interested in her. Even though she is this playwright, I don't know very much about her.
1: That's true. That That is a good point. And especially later when oh, we haven't even talked about Keanu Reeves as the doctor, right. when he knows all of her stuff, he is the only person. And it's only then that then Harry Googles her and says she's been mentioned a lot. Maybe because I saw this in 03, right? Maybe if I saw it in 04, 05, I just believed everything and just went along with it. I find that the more I learn about writing screenplays, the more ruined watching a movie experiences for me because I'm now <laughs> picking apart everything, right? Um right. maybe because the movie's already ingrained in my brain. Now even rewatching it, I didn't pick that part apart, but you're absolutely right. And also even naming that other playwright, I've heard of that name. I couldn't name any of her plays, but it was one of those things that were where I just assumed, ah Nancy Myers knows more than me. So okay, but you're right. I've heard of Ionesco and I've heard of Tennessee Williams you know, I know of them.
0: Nancy Myers is right. Lillian Hellman is the best American 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 female playwright.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And her most famous plays, The Children's Hour and The Little Foxes. And she also wrote for movies. She's also well known for her affair with Dashiell Hammett. If you've ever seen the movie Julia, Jane Fonda plays Lillian Hillman. But she's on the level of William Inge or Clifford Odets, which are second tier American playwrights. In addition to this, and this was really talked about at the time. And we'll get into this in Sudden Fear because a women dating younger men, mm-hmm. there's a big different attitude between movies made in the 40s and 50s and movies that were starting to be made in the 70s and 80s. Because people started talking about, of course, men get younger women. That's the way it is. And they talk about that in the movie. Mm-hmm. But they had a movie about a woman dating a younger man, they had to talk about it And they had to debate whether this was even believable. Mm or realistic, and they did here too. There's a bunch of talk about, could Diane Keaton interest someone like Kawanna Reeves? I think they asked the right questions, but they came to the wrong conclusions. Uh huh. For one thing, they say, well, Jack Nicholson has no problem getting younger women because older men don't have the same problem women do. Younger women are attracted to them. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. If Jack Nicholson was the janitor in their building, <laughs> None of these women would have given him the time of day. Right, right. The only reason he can really attract all these younger women is he owns in businesses and he's number two on the production of rap music. That's the reason. Yes. But then we have the problem with Erica and could she get a younger man? Well, of course she could for the same reason that Jack Nicholson could. She's one of the biggest talents on Broadway she's not going to have trouble getting a younger man if that's what she wants but one they give her Kwano Reeves Kwano Reeves is really attractive but he's as dull as dishwater yeah. <laughs> and he can't act i know so first of all there's that they stack the deck against her there but then they don't seem to know what her issue is. They don't know whether her issue is that, unlike men, since she's an older woman, she can't get younger men, which I don't buy. She could be dating her leading man. She could be dating the producers of her plays. A lot of people who are younger, especially within that artistic world. Mm-hmm. But then they change courses and the implication is she doesn't like to have casual sex. She wants to be in a relationship with a man before she can have sex. She's uptight about that because they talk about her being a bit uptight. I said, well, okay, but that's not a man's fault. Right. That's not the idea that a man can get younger woman. That doesn't say anything about that. That's her decision. And even with that, I'm not sure I buy it find a younger man to have a long-term relationship with
1: yeah that's interesting i'm also looking at it through the lens of oh three and now there's a part of me that sometimes that feels like when i get success i'm like why isn't a guy chasing after me right now and then i'm told it's because guys are intimidated by successful women sometimes and it's like well get over that <laughs> like, yes. What do you mean? not just sometimes it's like oh i just wasn't that into you or he wasn't attracted i can see in the lens of 2021 saying of course she can date an older man and of course he'd be into her because she's successful and men aren't as threatened by that nowadays, maybe in 03, maybe that was still issue. You know what I mean?
0: I think it grows out to a certain degree of the way women were portrayed in movies in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Mm -hmm. You can find a lot of positive portrayals of women who are very powerful. But this was some of the ugliest, ugliest portrayals of women Mm -hmm. in film history. It was because of men. They did not like powerful women. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Women
0: were gaining power, so they were portraying them as these neurotic women who fail when they try to do a man's job. I think if you went out in real life, even in 2003, you'll find out that women often date younger men. Now, whether they can have a lasting relationship with them. Right is another question. Yeah. But you also have to look at it this way. When men end up with younger women, everybody says, well, it's because the younger woman is in love with him." And I'm going, no, it's usually because they want the guy's money. I don't right. care what they tell you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Women have to also, if they're going to date younger men, they may have to go, well, it's because they want your money, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> right. In rewatching this, I, with the Keanu Reeves, Diane Keaton, her being so squeamish about it, I dated a guy who was like 11 years younger than me he never asked my age but I remember finding out how old he was and I felt a little squeamish about it it did feel weird and I don't have money so like it wasn't for the money <laughs> but it never came up and it was short-lived I remember thinking okay now I'm a woman who's dated a guy much younger than me it wasn't interesting change my thought process I was aware of it I was and so when I see Diane Keaton being hesitant when Keanu Reeves is trying to kiss her or she's like why do you like me <laughs> I kind of get that and Keanu Reeves yes yeah, Yes, I know. I was wondering if we were going to talk about that. I don't know how he got this part, or I say that. I know at the time he had just done, what, Matrix?
0: He had a huge assist with Bill and Ted's, and I can't watch The Matrix because he's in it. I try, and he's just so terrible. He can't act. He can't show any emotion. And someone <laughs> says, well, he's playing a part where you're not supposed to show any emotion, and I say, and he's terrible at that.
1: <laughs> right, I know. I don't know
0: if you're listening.
1: I know, we love sorry. you, but... <laughs>
0: Another issue when it comes to this is romantic comedies have changed over the years. I don't like them as much over the last 20, 30 years. I think women have been treated very badly in romantic comedies over the last 20 years. This one actually harkens back to the romantic comedies of the century 30s, and 40s, where one of the major themes of romantic comedies, and a lot of the films, was the alpha male finding the alpha female, or you might call them the Superman and the Superwoman. George Bernard Shaw defined this best. He's believed, and a lot of people believe, there's this life force driving the universe. But the way it's set up is that the alpha male's duty is to avoid commitment to not be tied down. Because that gets in the way of his mission. The alpha female's duty is, of course, to procreate and to keep the species going. So her duty is to nail down the alpha male. Mm Mm-hmm. And this causes a lot of the conflicts between it. But they're the Superman and the Superwoman, so they have to end up together, and that's what you like about them. When you yeah. get to the 60s and 70s, and even today, you get to the beta males and the beta females getting together. And also the interesting aspect of this is that on a scale of one to ten, the Superman or alpha males are number ten. They're superior to everybody. The Superwoman is at nine, so the Superwoman is superior to everybody, including males, except for the Superman. And in many ways, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the Superman and the Superwoman, the Alpha Male and the Alpha Woman finding each other and getting together. They're fulfilling yeah destiny with the life force
1: that's interesting i did just read an article not too long ago it wasn't about writing it was just in relation to relationships but it was saying how nowadays there are more alpha females because they're allowed to be because of society things changing and that alpha males and alpha females are often attracted to each other but deal with competition and so they most likely won't work out i thought that was interesting
0: but of course all those movies in the 30s and 40s end mm-hmm. together so who knows what happens right after that <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's also interesting is what often happens in the movies from the 30s and 40s is that the superwomen are on a pedestal and they have to get knocked down off that pedestal. But the Superman then has to make some kind of big romantic gesture to win her so he gets knocked off his pedestal too and in this she gets knocked off her pedestal And that she falls in love with jack nicholson and she has to go through all of this trial and tribulation over it. and then he makes the grand romantic gesture by completely changing his life and going to france and saying i love you and i want to be in a relationship with you i don't see a lot of these kind of rom-coms
1: uh-huh uh-huh today. This is a bad example to bring up because I don't remember details. But in thinking about describing this movie, I was, oh, yeah, I guess it's a romantic comedy. Sometimes I don't think in terms of genre. I'm just like, I like this movie. But in, in looking up Nancy Myers, I also thought of Nora Ephron because I sometimes get the two confused. But I was like, oh, yeah, it's these 90s rom-coms written by Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers. But I love them. But one in particular, I remember hating it. But it was music and lyrics. The Jimmy Fallon, oh. Drew Barrymore one.
0: Not I, Jimmy Fallon. He might have been in it but it's Hugh Grant.
1: Okay. Friend wanted to see it. I don't feel like seeing a movie. She's like, oh, I'll pay for it. And I was like, all right. I was so angry throughout the movie and I've never had a reaction like that before. Everything just felt unearned. They immediately lost me off the bat. My friend made fun of me later because I unintentionally huffed and crossed my arms. Something happened on the screen. This is so stupid. It did make me think, oh, when you said the romantic comedies of the last 20 years, have they gone downhill? Were the 90s in my brain the peak because of Nora Ephron and Nancy Myers?
0: Well, the rom yeah. for me the peak were the 30s and 40s. And in the 70s, we started getting the... Beta males and beta females or as we call them, the neurotic males and the neurotic females. Mm-hmm. And we have things like Annie Hall, which is to me the greatest rom-com ever. Today, the trends that have always bothered me are films like Knocked Up, which treat the women really terribly uh, in that movie, uh-huh. with a plot turn that makes no sense. When she tells Seth Rogen, "While well, I'm pregnant and you're the father," I could understand her wanting him in his life. With the life of me, I cannot understand in a million years is why she would want to have a romantic relationship with him. Mm-hmm. She's obviously superior to him in every (laughs) way. Uh, The ones that I actually find are very enjoyable are the bromances. Yeah. You have a lot of child men and the women in their lives are very understanding because they're the alpha females. Those I like because the women aren't denigrated in those. But I find women denigrated a lot in rom coms in the last 20 years.
1: I could see that. Even in something's got to give. I was watching it with more of a 2021 eye. When Jack, I mean, it was necessary for his character. But when he sees Diane Keaton naked after that, well, that's well, unfortunate. When he makes fun of her her, like, oh, god, I wish I hadn't seen that. And his apartment is like, she looks great. <laughs> yeah, that's that.
0: it. Why is he acting like that? Right.
1: I mean, that kind of hit me.
0: The other scene like that that I thought was strange was when she tries to give him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, yeah. and I'm going, he's wide awake. Why are you giving him yeah. mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? But you do mention Nancy Myers. Are you a fan of hers, or do you like her movies a lot?
1: I re-looked at her IMDb to make sure the other movies I was going to suggest right. were hers. I was reminded of movies that I forgot were hers. Oh my gosh, she's amazing. She and Nora Ephron. Say what you know about Nancy Myers, because I can't claim to know anything detailed about her other than I love a lot of her movies.
0: Well, I can't say I know an incredible amount. She's one of the very few female directors that do studio films, and she's mm-hmm. still doing it. They're doing another sequel to Father of the Bride. I think for me, my favorite movie's of hers is still baby boom
1: right that's one that i didn't realize was hers and i was like oh and that's diane keaton so i guess they're pals and diane keaton's in father of the bride right Um, it's been a while since i've seen baby boom but i saw it when i was younger and then a little older i remember liking it
0: movies like that and and movies like it's complicated and something yeah uh, have a very different attitude toward women they're very sexual if they want to be they take control of their lives they make their own choices they're not so much driven by well that's how a woman acts because that's women, they're not stereotyped women. Mm-hmm. So I do give her that. From a directing standpoint, her films aren't that necessarily visually interesting. I think I prefer today Nicole Holofcener, who does friends with money and please give her last one was can you ever forgive me with
1: uh, oh, okay melissa, melissa McCarthy. McCarthy. i saw that I, I don't know of the other ones i'm getting better at watching movies that i've never seen
0: she's one of those who can do low-budget films with big-name actors and mm-hmm. then francis mcnormand and jennifer aniston
1: you mentioned it's complicated something i wanted to say about that is I remember when It's Complicated came out. I don't remember if I had seen it yet or not, but I remember reading a review of it. The review was written by a woman and it was saying how, in a kind of negative way, that It's Complicated is a hallmark of Nancy Meyer's trademark and related it to Something's Gotta Give, saying it's the older female protagonist whose man has left her, but she lives in this fantastic perfect house with a fantastic perfect kitchen. She's got her own career and then all All the men end up falling in love with her in a way that that doesn't happen. I think that stuck with me, but also it pulls me in. See, It's the female fantasy of having it all and having the men you want, including the ones who wronged you, come back for you. Whether you're going to take them back or not is the question. To see it so plainly put out like that.
0: With that... Here's some more information about the movie. Okay. It cost $80 million to make, and it made $266.7 million. It opened at number one. Diane Keaton was nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. Nicholson was nominated for Best Actor in a Comedy for the Golden Globes. And Keaton won the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Comedy. But this was the year of Monster with Charlie's Theron, and uh, there's no yeah. way you were going to yeah. defeat yeah. Charlie Theron. The American poster for the film featured large pictures of Jack Nicholson Nicholson and Diane Keaton, but in Japan the poster also included a large picture of Keanu Reeves, Presumably because of his popularity there at the time. Hmm, interesting. The title of the movie is from a 1954 song written by Johnny Mercer, and I will not sing it. (laughs) My audience, I'm sure, will be appreciated of that. But the lyrics go, when an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me, you can bet just as sure as you live, something's got to give, something's got to give, something's got to give.
1: Huh. oh wow that's cool it's an
0: old standard i like
1: the metaphor
0: with that let's get to my selection and oh, car- that is set in fear for some information about the film set in fear is an american film novel released in 1952 it was directed by david miller from a screenplay by lenore j coffee and robert smith based on the novel of the same name written by edna sherry it stars joan crawford jack palance gloria graham bruce bennett virginia houston and mike connors the story revolves around playwright Myra Hudson, who fires an actor from her new production because she doesn't think he is good-looking enough. While returning to San Francisco by train, she runs into the actor. Bridges aren't burned, and she falls in love with him and marries him. But when an old girlfriend of the man shows up, is murder in the air. What do you think of the pairing of the two films?
1: I totally get why you did it. The successful female playwright being undone in some way by the male love interest. I'm kind of like Alan. I remember he, I think he said this to you on, on the podcast with Dumb and Dumber. I'm not great at knowing old films that I probably should know and be better versed in. I appreciate both the similarities and the juxtaposition of the two.
0: And when did you first see the film? (laughs) Sounds like recently. (laughs) Yes,
1: I watched it about two weeks ago. And then I rewatched it this morning to make sure I uh, hadn't forgotten important things. And with that, every time an older movie is suggested to me and I watch it, I always think, oh, I enjoyed this. I should watch these more. And then I don't (laughs) until someone (laughs) says, hey, watch this specific one. I think. For some reason, I just always assume I'm going to be bored and it never turns out the way I'm usually more interested in. If it's not the story, it's, oh, this is how they shot that back then. Or here are the differences between back then and today. I don't think your
0: reaction is very unusual. A lot of people who don't watch older films agree with you. They think they're going to be boring and sometimes they are. The timing is often different. The way they create the story, etc., is very different from today's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then sometimes people are surprised. You're talking about Alan, and apparently he quite enjoyed Too Late for Tears. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my third time first seeing the film. I can't remember when I first saw it. Who knows? I find it a very enjoyable film. It's not one of the top tier film noirs, but it's a very enjoyable story and a very enjoyable film to especially gets you going at the end. What are some of your favorite scenes?
1: In general, I made the note to myself, I felt like it was very progressive for a movie in the 50s to have it be a successful female writer, even mm. though they added in the heiress thing, though they had to for her to be, I guess, like extra wealthy for the money to be such a temptation. But I just thought, oh, this is cool. A black and white movie where the woman is the powerful one. I really like the opening because it fooled me because I actually was sitting there saying, why in the world is Jack Palance why are they casting him as this leading guy? Because I specifically thought to myself, he's not attractive enough to be the lead in a romantic. And then that's the whole point. That's how they open with you're not attractive enough. And I was like, oh, all right, at least I'm on, least I'm on the same page. In the rewatch, I was waiting to figure out whether it was his plan all along. Because in Chicago, beginning on the train, he asked if he can change his ticket to go on to San Francisco. So I thought, oh, okay, it wasn't planned. Then when the ex shows up, he's mad at her for showing up. In the rewatch, the more it developed, the more I was, oh, okay, no, it's just that he just falls back in with her, right?
0: Right. He's living pretty right now. Then she shows up and threatening to expose him. And then he realized, well, he really still loves her more than Joan Crawford. Yes. With the two of them, maybe they can get rid of Joan Crawford and have all the money to themselves. hmm
1: hmm When he's talking to the ex and says, I wish she would wise up and just realize I never loved you. That's what made me think, oh, was it all the time? Also, with glue Graham, I had to look up her name because I'm like, that's Oklahoma. That's something I like about old movies. The old movies I did watch more frequently as a kid were the musicals. That was Ado Annie. Oh, also Joan Crawford. I don't think I've ever seen one of her movies. I had to untangle in my brain Faye Dunaway because I've seen Mommy Dearest. I kept having to remind myself, no, 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 this isn't Faye Dunaway playing Joan Crawford. <laughs> this is Joan Crawford. It was cool to see her. But when she hears the proof on that recording, she pulls it out and she's going to go hide it. And then it breaks. I was like, no! Nah! I knew that the writers had to do that. And then they also have her friends being out of town that weekend on the rewatch. I was like, just call the police. And the very end, with him hitting Irene with a car, Joan Crawford yelling out, no, 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 it's Irene! I wrote the note to myself, she's a lot less petty than me because I wouldn't have tried (laughs) to save her. (laughs) But what about you? What are some of your favorite parts?
0: At the end, when, yeah, he does hit Gloria Graham, one of the things I thought when that scene was developing is how clever screenwriters can be sometimes. Earlier, when they're getting ready to go to the park, John Crawford says to Gloria Graham, oh, if I'd known you were wearing white, I would have worn something else. And that becomes then very important because at the end, they're both dressed almost identical. And that's why you can't tell the difference. So a little line like that suddenly is very big. I agree that the dictaphone scene, when she hears what's really going on and what they're planning to do, that's the great scene. That's Mm -hmm. But I also agree with you, she had plenty of time to call the police. They didn't do anything like someone's approaching the room or anything. The scene, I also like the scene at the end where she is going over the plan in her head.
1: Yes, the close-up on her eyes while...
0: And then at the end, when she looks herself in the mirror and I was going, I knew you weren't going to go. Through
1: it anyway. Right. Mean, that does a good uh, job of keeping her likable, I guess, that she didn't actually go through with it.
0: Well, they could never go through with it for one thing, because of the censorship. She'd have to be punished at the end, and we didn't want her.
1: Uh, oh.
0: I do also like the ending. The ending you really gets your blood going as she's running around, and she's not at that point running around San Francisco. I believe at that point. They're shooting that in Bunker Hill in Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Which is standing
1: in for San Francisco. Something I noticed at the end: the whole period where she's hiding in the closet, and then there's the running out around the hiding the closet. I thought to myself, it felt long. I had started thinking the difference between today's filmmaking, I guess, and back then. But also, it's film noir, so they're trying to build suspense and tension. There were long stretches with number one, no dialogue, but number two, no ominous music for a bit. Right as I thought that, then the phone rang on the screen and it made her jump. And I thought, okay, that's why that was silent just then. But then it stayed silent for a bit. And then later when she's running around and he's in the car and chasing her and stuff, there was music there. But I wanted to ask you, I wondered if that was a 50s movie thing or a film noir thing. It was just very obviously silent and then some tension music.
0: I can't say that's necessarily typical. I think the leisurely pace is very 30s, 40s, and 50s. So mm. I think that's true. But also, Jim Crawford was very involved in this movie. This is all her. So she's probably going to want to say, you know, keep the camera on me for
1: mm. a <laughs> solid <time."> half hour.
0: <laughs> Yeah, this is this is my movie. This is what people are going to come to see. And we can talk a little about Joan Crawford because I've seen a huge number of her performances. She worked for studios up until somewhere around 1940-41 where she was let go because her movies weren't doing well. She just did not give up. She started finding vehicles. She became her own producer. Her first film was Mildred Pierce, and she won the Oscar for it. It probably is the epitome of a Joan Crawford movie she was in on everything here all the films she started making she was going to make sure that she was going to be behind the scenes on everything Um, who got cast the script so you have to very very much admire her she was a great businesswoman I mean she had demons she was an alcoholic which is never a good thing I do feel that her best performances are in the 1930s up until Mildred Pierce with things like Rain the Women a Woman's Face I think she tends to go overboard here as well at times but it's her vehicle
1: yeah was jack Pallant at this time a name i only know him from city slickers which i loved him in
0: <laughs> this isn't his first film but no he wasn't as well known this was his first oscar nomination then he goes on to do shane His career never quite went the way one think it would after getting two Oscar nominations so close together. Partly, probably because he's not a leading man, Mm -hmm. and then I think he started to overact quite a bit, Uh. and that was perfect for City Slicker.
1: Yeah, day ain't over yet. Yeah.
0: Somehow, I think he got something of his talent back at that point, but he wasn't quite the star that might have been suggested by these. First films.
1: Since I knew him as an old man in city slickers with pronounced cheekbones, seeing him as a young man, it was interesting. And with the whole debate in the beginning of is he attractive? Is he attractive enough for this? I can't tell. It's not that he's not attractive. He just has such an unusual shape to his face.
0: Yes, that's it. Those high, sharp cheekbones and eyebrows that are a bit devilish
1: something related to him in this movie that I wanted to bring up because I noticed it in the one other old movie that I had to watch for a film writing class. When he pushes Ado Annie, when he pushes Gloria Graham down onto the couch, I think he hits her face. Doesn't slap her, but pushes her face and she falls down onto the couch when he's mad at her after they meet up in the apartment for the first time when he realizes she's moved there. It was a moment of, oh, (laughs) you know, like, oh, that doesn't fly today. Even if he does turn into the bad guy, I had to watch Philadelphia's story, Cary Grant and Katherine oh, yes. Hepburn. Yeah. And in that, if you remember that opening, which was a great opening, but she's kicking him out of the house. He has a suitcase and he turns around and he just shoves her in the face and she falls. Right. And there's no repercussion from that. I remember at the time, the class debating that moment and it's never brought up again in the movie. And it's like, oh, I guess that was just the times. It's okay to beat your woman. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you do have a point there. Also in Philadelphia Story, I think they suggest that he actually has hit her. Oh, okay. Uh,
1: yeah, well. yeah.
0: And they do gloss over that. There are a couple of things to say to that. One is the scene would have been in the play, The Philadelphia Story, which is adapted from. But at that time, Katherine Hepburn's career was very problematic. There was a critic who used the phrase box office poison and listed a number of actresses because their films weren't doing well. She was one of them. So she went to Broadway, did The Philadelphia Story. It was more or less written for her. Okay. She was dating Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks bought the rights and gave it to her as a gift. So there's no way they could do the movie without her being in it. She was in many ways dislikable. The audience didn't like her. So you have this opening scene where Carrie Grant just shoves her to the ground (laughs) and she suddenly becomes more likable. That's true.
1: That's true.
0: one of the things that's related to that, that Alan said that I never really noticed, and he said it about Too Late for Tears, and I really started noticing it in films, and I noticed it in this film. Men just walk into a woman's apartment or a woman's room. They don't ask permission. They right. just shove her out of the way and walk in. And he said, was that the way it was back then, that that's the way men were? Yes, I guess it <laughs> <laughs> was And I think there would be an interesting paper to write about Feois, about.: yeah. you know, yeah. The interesting thing in relation to that is, in response, the women always stood up to the men. Mm. and they eventually were able to handle him, was able to put a stop to whatever they were doing. They had to play a game with him. They had right. to manipulate him mentally to do it. But yes, men were much more aggressive toward women. It wasn't looked down at the time. And if you're with an alpha male and an alpha female, you're not going to think as much about it because the alpha female will often give back just as give it much.
1: Back. As, That's true. That's true. That's a good way of looking at give it.
0: it. But it is one of the things about the way women were treated at the time that is often problematic. Yeah.
1: Some, thing else about the time that I wanted to point out about both movies is for Sudden Fear, I was like, oh yay! There was one person of color in it, and it was the porter in the train who brought well. them the, right? Him, I do this sometimes with even movies from like the 80s, where one person has a one-liner. I sometimes go off and think about, I wonder what they did after this movie came out. I wonder if they kept trying, or if they moved back to their hometown. But then, especially in the 50s, I see a black actor. I wonder, what was his life like how long he in hollywood how many roles were even available for him to audition for i go into this whole story building of, he no. was
0: probably often used as porters things like that the more interesting characters from that perspective are the ones who played maids they would often get a lot more time on screen but were often treated in stereotypes okay i always like to point out one actress Teresa harris and she was a black actress who i started noticing in movies in the 50s that she wasn't the stereotype like me. She didn't look like them. She was always very well-spoken, but very quiet. She wasn't sarcastic. And I got more and more fascinated by her and finally found out who she was. If you go to her IMDb, she has an incredibly long list, most of them uncredited, huh. which wasn't unusual for the 30s 40s and 50s not just for black actors but for anybody who had really really small mm-hmm. roles. she's in a number of movies that are really big today for movie fans of that period baby face cat people out of the past she was so well respected that sometimes the director and writer would write more for her mm-hmm. to increase her part in black neighborhoods if she was in a film The film was advertised as being with Teresa Harris.
1: Oh, wow. Good for her. And here's the bigger point I wanted to make. Fast forward to 2003, something's got to give. I realized with horror, the only one that I noticed is the, I think she's Hispanic. I think her name's Dr. Gonzalez.
0: Yes, and that's it. It's very Woody Allen in that way. It's a New York in which almost everybody (laughs) when i watch these old movies i notice them as extras oh, okay and a scene in the maltese falcon when he goes to take the maltese falcon and check it in at this place where you can check in packages you see a black couple just talking to each other if you start being aware of that and you start reading books about how blacks were treated then suddenly you start noticing them when i did the show on american graffiti i pointed out that at the high school dance there is one black couple you were talking about musicals of the period. If someone like Lena Horne was singing a song, they would often shoot it two ways one where it's focused on her singing, and another where it's focused on main characters. Mm-hmm. And the one where she's only heard singing would be the ones shown in the South. Uh. I know. <laughs> And now we can get back on the idea of older women and younger men. Mm-hmm. Because in the 40s and 50s, it was very, very different. And I don't think people realize it now. And I don't think people realized it then. Jack Palance is 15 years younger than John Oh, Plance. okay. Nobody says anything about it. Nobody makes any mention. And not in the reviews either. Huh. In the 40s and 50s, it was quite common for older actresses to have younger leading men. Now, it wouldn't be like Fred Astaire or Cary Grant, where there's 30 or 40 years difference. But here we have someone who's 15 years younger, but everybody was like that. And sometimes it ends happily with Betty Davis and All About Eve, where there's an eight-year difference. Or All This in Heaven 2 with Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson, where Rock Hudson is really younger than Jane Wyman. But that has a happy ending. Sometimes it doesn't, as in this one.
1: Is it because of the female star power at the time?
0: Yes, I think that's one of the main reasons. In the 40s and 50s, actresses still worked for studios. Even if it wasn't a 10-year contract, they might have a three or four movie contract, and their movies did make money. So if they don't work, you still have to pay them. Okay. So you do something with them, so you're creating all <laughs> vehicles for them. And what better place to use your up-and-coming actors? This was very uncommon, and nobody really said anything about it. Whereas today, you do it, everybody says, well, is this possible? Would this happen?
1: Right.
0: That's just a huge, huge difference.
1: In re-watching this, I meant to look up and see what the age difference between Jack Palance and Joan Crawford was. Something I do when I do watch older movies, I visualize Joan Crawford, like I said, the Faye Dunaway, but right. I also visualize her as older. The Ryan Murphy feud show. Even though she might be, what, 35 in that or something? But oh, I, no, it, no, no, well,
0: no. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, she's like in her 60s. That's the beginning of the crazy old lady film trimmed
1: okay okay yeah. but in sudden fear she like 35 no she was born in
0: 1905 so she's probably oh. 47
1: okay all right
0: she started in silent films that's when she became a star oh, oh wow the other thing to talk about this is a particular kind of sub-genre these are called women in danger or women in peril films mm. Often, the first one is attributed to a movie called Love from a Stranger or A Night of Terror in the 1930s, based on a short story by Agatha Christie called Philomel Cottage. Usually, but not always, a woman in danger or a woman in peril films is about a woman who becomes romantically involved with someone, but that person doesn't turn out to be who they think they are, and that, mm-hmm. that person usually wants to kill them. And Love from a Stranger, it's about a woman who wins the lottery, and when a stranger comes and woos her, she breaks up with her fiancé and marries him. They go off to a cottage in the country and she realizes that he is planning to kill her.
1: (laughs) Women just aren't safe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) Though in women danger films, they almost always win. Perhaps the most famous one or the most popular one of the period is Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer, where she plays a wealthy woman. Charles Boyer woos her and marries her, but he's marrying her because her aunt, who's now dead, had a lot of jewels that the aunt hid. And he's driving her crazy while he's looking for the jewels. That's where we get
1: the, the term gas- okay. gaslighting. Okay, then I've heard of that because when I originally was like, what's gaslighting? And I Googled it, I saw that it was based on a previous movie. Interesting.
0: These are very popular movies. For women to do. Just about every single actress did one for very good reasons. They allow the actress as the central character, she runs the gamut of emotions from A to Z. Mm -hmm. She always wins out, so it shows her as very strong. Here at the very end, Joan Crawford is not punished for being a very successful female playwright. She is punished for falling in love with this guy who she should, but she's not punished for being a strong and independent woman. She walks off with that look on her face of triumph. Even today, they still get made. Jennifer Lopez made a very successful one, though people made fun of it, called The Boy Next Door, but it made a lot of money. Elizabeth Moss just recently did The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These can be kind of a fun film to watch. And they introduced a rather recent phrase into film noir, which I never really heard used until about five years ago. As people are getting more and more into film noir, it's my favorite genre. As people are trying to expand what film noir is, we now I have a new term it's called a home fatale instead of a film fatale it's uh-huh. a... i did want to also bring up the writer lenore j Coffey. she was an american screenwriter playwright and novelist she started off in silent films so it was a woman and if you look at her list of films she writes films with very strong women like nancy myers does mm-hmm. they're very independent they're very strong and she usually doesn't punish them necessarily they might end up unhappily but mm-hmm. Old acquaintance is one of hers, the great lie, this, but she must have fifty or sixty credits. Really? Oh wow. Which also means she probably has more just in get credited for them. Mm-hmm. But she does have a great quote about Hollywood. They pick your brains, break your heart, run your digestion, and what do you get for it? Nothing but a lousy fortune.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Right. Oh, that's a good quote.
0: The one other thing I did want to mention in regard to Joan Crawford. This is the first time I saw so many people who got credit for her wardrobe. Oh there's there someone who designed her gowns, someone for the furs, hats, jewelry, and someone for the lingerie.
1: Oh wow. I did take note of her sleeping dressing gowns. I wonder if women actually wore those back then or if it was just in
0: movies. It'd be interesting to see because they just look awfully uncomfortable. Yeah. In closing out, we can talk about some of the technical aspects of the film. What did you think about the look of the film?
1: feel like I'm not as knowledgeable at putting vocabulary. I liked it, the black and white, but I did notice two goofs. There was a hand, I think it's Jack Palance, is closing the door at the girlfriend's apartment and it doesn't close all the way and a hand comes out and closes it.
0: Wow. I I almost want to now go look for that. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And then in the rewatch, when he's, where are you? Where are you? Irene, when he's still in her apartment and he realizes something's gone wrong, he goes into her bathroom, then runs back out into the hallway I think it's the shadow of the boom above them. But other than that, yeah, other than what I said about the music, these periods of silence that nowadays would probably be filled with tense music.
0: I think the cinematography is very nice at times, especially inside when you see a lot of those shadows, bars along the wall, which are reflections of the windows.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did notice when she knows he's up to something and she goes in there to put the key back, he wakes up. I notice the vertical blinds in a shadow on his face. I'm not big on noticing that stuff, and so when I notice it, it means something.
0: That was a very big type of shot. Many ways started with Maltese Falcon as a foreshadow of jail. Yeah. Or uh, Charles Lang was the cinematographer. He was one of the top cinematographers of the time and is known for movies like Sabrina, Charade, Some Like It Hot. So he's one. Okay, but you also okay. talked about the music, and that's Elmer Bernstein, who is one of the great, great film composers. Today, he's probably the most famous of his compositions is The Magnificent Seven. But he also did an incredibly beautiful job on To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: Oh, he did To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. Yeah.
0: But after this, he provided the music for Robot Monster, huh. where he it's... used some of the music from this as part of it. Robot Monster is legendary is one of the worst, worst films ever made.
1: I was going to say, it sounds like a B movie.
0: That's being generous.
1: Okay. (laughs) It's a
0: movie that got made because this man psychiatrist was afraid he was gonna kill himself, so he got a bunch of people together to give him money to make this movie With that, here's some more information about the film. It made $1.65 million at the box office. I don't know how much it cost to make. It's often hard to find that kind of information. It got four Academy Award nominations for Best Actress for Joan Crawford, for Best Supporting Actor for Jack Palance, Best Cinematography, Black and White for Charles Lang, and Best Costume Design, Black and White for Sheila O'Brien. Joan Crawford was nominated for Best Dramatic Actress for the Golden Globe Awards. This was her last Oscar nomination. But this was the year of Shirley Booth for Come Back, Little Sheep. This was the first film reviewed by betting critic and future director Francois Truffaut in March of 1953 for the French magazine Cahiers du Cinema, which is one of the most influential and famous magazines about movies. Did he like it? You know, I didn't read it. I wouldn't doubt that he did because French filmmakers, Godard, Truffaut, and others like that were incredibly influenced
1: mm-hmm. by
0: film noir. And then Mike Connors, who played Junior Kearney, is best known for playing Mannix, a private detective television series that was on the air from 1967 to 1975. And this was his first film role. I used oh, to watch goodness. Mannix every week.
1: Really? Uh
0: With that, let's start closing out, and I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience.
1: So I went with Nancy Meyer stuff. To me, the obvious one that most similar to this is it's complicated, but that's not one of my favorites. The two Nancy Meyer favorites of mine out of her list were The Holiday and Father mm-hmm. of the Bride. Father of the Bride, I've seen that, oh my gosh, so many times, and it makes me cry. It's just so beautiful. Well, you
0: should see the original with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor.
1: Right, I forget that it's actually based on, yeah.
0: I'm going to go with three Women in Peril or Women in Danger film. The one I mentioned before was George Cucor's 1944 melodrama Gaslight, but also there is Claude Chabrol's 1970 French film Les Bouchers, or The Butcher, which revolves around a growing relationship between a dour butcher and a repressed schoolteacher at the same time that there are a series of grisly murders of young women in their town. Ugh. And then Stanley Donnan's 1963 film Charade, Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, which revolves around a recent widow who discovers that her husband's old war buddies think she knows where her husband buried a fortune that they stole during the war. So what is next? What should we be looking forward from
1: Well, hopefully I'm in the trade soon for having sold something. But in the meantime, my blog, kellythinksthis.com, I've got my latest web series up there and a short that did well. Otherwise, I'm working on a few different scripts, both for TV and film. Hoping to get them out there soon.
0: What is the name of the series and the short film?
1: The web series is called Bellagram. It's a comedy, half witch, half human, who doesn't want to turn to the bad side, doesn't want to have to turn to her evil mom for help with her failing Singing telegram business, but ends up having to. And in order to get the money, she has to agree to incorporate evil spells in hexes into her singing telegrams to people. And then the short is called The Bachelorette Party, and it's what women would want at their bachelorette party. Men want a stripper, but it's what a woman would want.
0: As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, so I have a Howard Kasner Facebook screenplay consultation page. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings where I talk about issues with movies and screenwriting. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations, and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, horror, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. I have published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, on Amazon. I'm an amateur photographer, and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with Hollywood Hyphenate writer, director, producer Keith Hartman, where we discussed Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and Coherence, two movies about multiple universes. The next episode will be with fellow podcaster Amanda Kirkham, where we will discuss Down With Love and Pillow Talk, two battle of the Sexes films. So with that, Kelly, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show.
1: Of course. Thank you very much. This is fun.